0: This episode is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society, seeking to amplify women's stories and deepen our collective understanding of the many roles women play in history. This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Bree Smith, Molly Moss, Deb Potter, Jill Harrigan, Kim Hokanson, Jan Cannon, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Eugene Lewis, and Lindsey Cummings. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Just visit our website and click donate. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. You are, as I know, the parent of a tween. <laughs> yes. yes, I've got a full-fledged tween on my hands, that's for sure. <laughs> He's 11, going on 17. <laughs> and as a parent of three teenagers, or former teenagers myself, that is a very interesting experience on several levels. Parenting makes you revisit it all with such interest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, uh, I wonder oh. what was actually going on when I thought that's what yeah. was going on. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. I feel like... I was the trouble teenager of our parents' lives. I was the vexing one. I was quoted Shakespeare. That's how vexing I was. How sharper than sharper a serpent's than a tooth. Serpent's tooth. <laughs> Ooh, I got to pull that one out. Yeah. I have not been utilizing my literary nope. training clearly. And I think throughout history, there have been some time-honored traditions in both being and parenting teenagers that continue to crop up over and over again. Hmm. Such as? For example, let's zoom in on one particular teenager. She is 17 years old. She has been arguing a lot with her parents. Her father and stepmother have a long list of grievances, or as they would call them, concerns. (laughs) Primary among those concerns is that she has recently started smoking, Oh, my. And not just smoking, but smoking in public. (sighs) Scandalizing the neighborhood, reflecting poorly on her father's career. They have been fighting about it for months. And finally, her father issues a well-beloved parental ultimatum. Young lady, you will not smoke under my roof. Mmm, classic. And... She obliges him. She does not smoke under his roof. Instead, she climbs out of her bedroom window, up onto the roof, Yes, and smokes up there oh. for the benefit of the entire neighborhood. <laughs> yes. And by the neighborhood, I mean the reporters on the front lawn, and the tourists, uh. oh, and the Secret Service, because <laughs> did I mention that this house is... The The White White House, House. (laughs) and it is 1902, (gasps) and this 18-year-old girl is Alice Roosevelt, glorious, famed eldest daughter of Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, incredible! And she is now smoking on the roof of the White House, (laughs) (laughs) to the absolute horror, but come on, really delight of the entire nation. Uh huh. I mean, I don't approve of smoking, but I do approve of smoking on the roof of the White House. (laughs) This incident, one of many similar incidents, goes to show not just the character of Alice Roosevelt, but also how quickly she figured out how to use her position in society and her father's position in society as president of the United States. To do exactly what she wanted. (laughs) And her life is a long, long train of her doing exactly what she wanted. Yes. In fact, she even codified this way of life into her own motto. She famously said, I have a simple philosophy. Fill what's empty, empty what's full, and scratch where it itches. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Now, none of that is acceptable for a woman in 1902, and especially the daughter of the President of the United States. Every story that you hear about Alice Roosevelt is too good to be true, and yet is somehow totally true. (laughs) I first found out about her maybe 10 years ago. I saw a meme about her somewhere, I think. This is Alice Roosevelt, daughter of Teddy Roosevelt. She had a pet snake named Emily Spinach. That she took to parties with her. <laughs> and uh, that was I was instantly in love. Right. That was all I That's needed. That's all I need to know. And the deeper <laughs> I've dug into her, the more amazing she was. And I've wanted to do an episode on her for ages, but there just there were plenty of anecdotes, but there wasn't sort of a comprehensive source that I felt like we could go to that would have enough information to do a full episode. Until Ba-ba-ba-ba. a brand new book just came out last month: White House Wild Child. By Shelly Fraser Mickle. 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 I know. Spelled in a much more reasonable way than, oh. than my bizarre spelling. Great title. So now I finally get to introduce you and everyone to one of my all time favorite Americans. <laughs> I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of.
1: I'm Shelly Fraser-Mickle, and I grew up in Arkansas, and I've been writing books for 50 years. I was writing novels for a very long time, and today, to publish a novel, you have to be cool. And if I was ever cool, it has rubbed off. So in the last five or six years, I switched to writing nonfiction.
0: Shelley Fraser-Mickle is the author of more than a dozen books. Her books have won All kinds of awards, New York Times Notable Books, Library Association Awards. And this book dives into aspects of Alice past the antics and the stories to the why Mm. of what she's doing. Fun. And it is an absolute delight.
1: I'm married to a brain surgeon who trained under Dr. Joe Murray, who was awarded the Nobel Prize for performing the first successful kidney transplant. And when I decided I wanted to write a nonfiction book, we were searching around for a subject. And he said, well, you know, that story about Joe putting in the kidney would make a pretty good story. So I thought surely David McCullough or Walter Isaacson had already written that because it's considered one of the greatest contributions to humankind in the 20th century. So I started researching it and found that there was not anything that was written for the general public. So even though I had made a C in college zoology, I told myself, if I can understand this complicated science and explain it in uh, good writing, whole sentences, <laughs> punctuated correctly, to a general reader, I will have created something about it. And in the research, I found all these historical figures who had suffered from kidney disease. And one of those that I came across was Alice Roosevelt's mother, Alice Hathaway Lee.
0: We are going to start, as is traditional, with Alice's birth. She was born on February 12th, 1884. Her father was off getting bills passed in the New York State Assembly. Her mother, Alice Hathaway Lee Roosevelt, was finally about to give birth after a very long-awaited pregnancy. Teddy gets a telegram alerting him to the birth of his daughter. He is over the moon. He's passing out cigars. He's bragging, bragging, bragging. But he doesn't head home immediately. He wants to hurry and get these last few bills passed. And even when another telegram arrives informing him that his wife Alice is only fairly well, Uh still waits until the next morning to get home. Ooh, He will regret that
1: bitterly for the rest of his life because... Alice Hathaway Lee was diagnosed with Bright's disease, which is a form of kidney disease, when she entered late with Alice at that late point. And
0: the childbirth has pushed it over the edge. And in
1: two days, she died. So Alice was only two days old when her mother died. Ooh,
0: And on top of that, Teddy's mother also died what? on the same day of typhoid fever. What? In the same house? In the same house on the same day, his wife what? and his mother die. That's the kind of thing that makes you question the Now that would be enough to kind of... The universe. Yeah, and
1: it certainly made him question the universe. He had two funerals in one day and then the baptism of little Alice the next day. And he was so devastated that he couldn't say her name, which was the same name as her mother. He had been
0: passionately, madly over the moon in love with his wife Alice, and was nearly unable to function after she died. He couldn't look at his newborn daughter He couldn't say her name because she was named after her mother. He just completely is unable to see her as anything but this reminder of his dead wife. He calls her Mousikins when she is little, but he never referred to her by her first name in her life. Wow. And, of course, little Alice didn't understand. And will basically spend the rest of her life desperately trying to get her father's attention and or prove that she doesn't need his attention. Mm. Wow. textbook. yeah, I, there's you know, there's so many of these stories where I just so desperately wish I could go back in time with a really good therapist. <laughs> can I just can I just give you three sessions? But the fallout of all of this is that Alice is, Essentially raised by her aunt, Teddy Roosevelt's sister, Anna Roosevelt, who was known as Bammy. And I guess presumably because this is Gilded Age America and they're extremely wealthy, she's raised by nannies and such like. Yes, so Bammy is not married. Bammy hires a huh. wet nurse and takes little Alice to live at her house while Teddy is absolutely burying himself in his work. Bami is is a truly remarkable woman. She deserves her own book, too. She's the powerhouse behind the scenes, both within the Roosevelt family and just in the larger political scene. She was born with a spinal problem. She was confined in a steel brace for a lot of her childhood, and that made it difficult for her to fit in the social scene as she was supposed to as a young, wealthy debutante. Mm-hmm. But... She was universally beloved by everyone who ever met her. She was just a magnetic, brilliant, charming woman who Teddy depended on his entire life. She was his number one advisor at every stage of his career in his life. Hmm.
1: Now, Bami is the most fascinating human being. T.R. had trouble with his daughter, Alice, and left a mark on her that wounded her for life. But Bami had a relationship with her father that made her who she was. And it's fascinating to discuss those two comparisons. Her father became the great philanthropist of Manhattan. His nickname was Greatheart. Heart. Bami was so brilliant, by the time she was 14, she'd read every book in her father's library her father realized she needed to be educated. And a lot of people today that I've talked to don't realize that women's education was considered to affect their fertility. But Great Heart believed in Bami and knew how brilliant she was, so he sent her to a school outside of Paris. Bami bloomed, and Madame Cervister realized how brilliant she was and dedicated a lot of time
0: to Baby. Alice, when she grows up, would later say that if Bammy had been a man, she would have been the president, not Teddy. Hmm. And that seems very true, ah. Bammy is by far the most influential person in Alice's life. Bammy will also be very involved in helping raise her other brother's children a little boy named Hall, and a little girl named Eleanor. Really? Yeah. Did yeah. you know, Teddy was... I didn't know the timelines were that linked. No, yeah. These two little girls, Alice Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, will maintain a very interesting relationship mm. throughout their life. Eleanor is being raised by her grandparents, who live very close to Sagamore Hill, where Alice is growing up. They are playing together constantly. The relationship would fracture as they grew and a lot of that we have to attribute firmly to alice alice was unbelievably cruel to eleanor for most of their life mocking her looks mocking her worldview her seriousness
1: in fact she was famous at her dinner parties of imitating eleanor with her buck teeth it was awful wow
0: Shelley Fraser Mickle feels that a lot of that comes down to, again, this relationship with her father. Eleanor is getting a lot of attention from Teddy.
1: Oh, well, there you go. Eleanor was his niece. Teddy adored Eleanor, and he gave her away at her wedding to FDR. Eleanor is getting attention
0: that Alice is not. And she can be the daughter that doesn't remind him of his dead wife. Yeah. She once said of Eleanor, Eleanor is good and goodness is boring, which I think speaks volumes. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Bammy can see that Teddy is floundering. He is not okay, and she really firmly believed that he was not capable of surviving without a wife. Uh-huh. And so she engineers a meeting with Teddy's childhood bestie, Edith Caro. Now, these two had always been expected to marry... They had been practically inseparable since they were four years old, but had a huge fight. No one ever knew over what. Hmm. And he went off to college and there fell hard for Alice Lee. But here's Edith Caro, still unmarried. <laughs> and a year later, Teddy marries Edith Caro. This large, growing family, they will eventually have five more children. Pushes Alice even further mm. to the edges of her father's life mm-hmm. and her own family. She's kind of circulating between her grandparents, her aunt, and her father and stepmother's house, feeling very strongly that the fact that she is constantly circulating means that nobody wants her and that mm. she is somehow a shameful secret that they want out of the way. Yeah. Now none of that is really true, but that's definitely how she sees it Mm -hmm.
1: and when those children started being born at Sagamore Hill everyone in the Big Roosevelt family would rush there to see the new baby of course so when Alice was about seven all the attention was on the new baby and it awoke in her that I can't tolerate this this can't be so she stood up in front of everybody and she said when I grow up I'm gonna give birth to a monkey (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. That was her kind of first passive-aggressive announcement. She learned to do whatever was necessary to turn the attention.
0: This strategy of no one knows how to respond and simply cannot help but look at you Mm -mm. will serve her well. Alice and Edith will be at loggerheads immediately. Her new stepmother is a big fan of propriety, reputation, (laughs) and creating and following rules. Ah. And Alice is not. Well, if it were me, that would steer me in the opposite direction for sure. (laughs) Yeah, Alice is emphatically not on board with this relationship (laughs) and very much not a fan of anyone, let alone... Some new lady Mm. telling her what to do. Mm. And the battles between them will become legendary. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And Alice is a handful. She is running around the streets, wild. (gasps) She is riding her bike around the neighborhood with her feet on the handlebars. (laughs) Imagine the amount of ankle being shown. (laughs) I'm on Alice's side, i got to say. Oh, yeah. What if they had just leaned into it? What if the stepmom had pretended that she loves that? Then Alice would have done the opposite and been proper. Unfortunately, I guess um, reverse psychology had not been invented. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least Edith had not figured it out. (laughs) And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. This season of What's Her Name is sponsored by the Women's History Initiative at the Utah Historical Society. Think you know Utah history? Think again. The Women's History Initiative highlights Utah's dynamic history makers, eight sovereign nations in Utah since time immemorial, pioneers, explorers, immigrants, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and dreamers who have made a home there ever since. Join the society to read the Utah Historical Quarterly, attend free virtual events, and get news about the future Museum of Utah. Visit history.utah.gov UWH to learn more. And the long-awaited statue of what's-her-name favorite Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon will be installed in the National Statuary Hall collection at the U.S. Capitol within the next few months, just the 13th woman featured in the hall. Follow at Utah State History on Instagram to catch Martha on the move as she makes her journey to D.C. And teachers at all levels can find all kinds of curriculum resources on their website, history.utah.gov U-W-H. Another issue is that Alice is disabled. She is in leg braces. Oh. Her feet, something is wrong with maybe the tendons or the cartilage, but she can't run very fast. She falls a lot. She's not very coordinated, and she is unable to succeed at the very physical uh-huh. games that her father loves. Uh-huh. And he lives his life very much in a, if this frightens you, then you must go do it and conquer it. Mm. And that is not her style. Mm. So she is always last at all of the games among all of the cousins and his five new children. And she feels increasingly ashamed of that and very resentful that he doesn't ever seem to notice how she feels that this is embarrassing to her when she is constantly the last one. Mm. He just seems totally oblivious to it. But she is living a pretty happy life at Bammy's house, and well, it's nice that Bammy is also braces and physically limited in that way, so she's got a yes role model. Yeah, Bammy definitely understood, and Aww. she absolutely sees Bammy as a model for how to be a woman hmm. that still gets to do what she wants. Yeah, Bammy is is raising Alice. But she is, yes, she's fully independent. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a husband. She runs her household the way she wants. She very much revolves her life around her family, around Teddy, around her other brother's children. Mm -hmm. But she has a degree of independence. She's feisty Mm -hmm. and brilliant. She's politically active. A totally different model of womanhood than she is getting in, say, her stepmother or in her friend's mother's. And then, William McKinley is assassinated. Ooh! And, Teddy Roosevelt is president. Bam! Overnight, instantly. Teddy picks up Alice at Bammie's and they ride the train together into Washington, D.C. to attend his inauguration.
1: So I want to paint since I'm a novelist, her arrival in Washington, D.C. He was moving into the wine house quickly, and he picked up Alice at her aunt's house, and they rode the train into Washington, D.C. So here is Alice getting off the train. She was 17 years old. She was gorgeous. She was pathologically shy, and she didn't want to ever speak. She was wearing a wine-colored dress, And she had a bouquet of violets in her waistband. So when she stepped off the train, those violets nodded and swayed as she walked. And people could not take their eye off of her. She was so gorgeous and sexual that when she was not supposed to own that or try to be that way. She is beautifully turned out, right? She is a very wealthy young woman.
0: And she is in her full sort of Gibson girl, full Edwardian gown, tiny little waist, corset, big poofy hair, huh. peak of fashion. She was stunningly beautiful, hates to speak in public, huh. but loves to be the center of attention. And oh. she doesn't have to talk, but everyone's looking at her. That is her happy place. Wow, that's interesting. And the press loses their mind. They are absolutely in love with this girl. Mm. And she is absolutely in love with them. She kind of reminds me of Annie Londonderry too. Figuring out that press attention is what feeds her soul. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, this is one of my soapboxes, but we talk about, like, even the phrase Mm attention-seeking is inherently negative. If you call someone attention seeking, that is not a compliment. Mm-hmm. But attention seeking, in my opinion, is value neutral. It can be used for good or evil. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting attention. Mm. It's fine to want attention mm. as long as you can navigate not stomping all over everyone else's attention mm. or using it for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. And as she steps off this train, she has suddenly discovered her drug of choice. Ah.
1: So all those splash bulbs started going off. And within a month's time, she became the most photographed woman in the world.
0: Wow. She is a sensation. It is impossible to overstate how much of a sensation she was. Shelley Fraser-Mirker says she's a combination of Princess Di and jackie kennedy and taylor swift and gloria Steinem. Hmm. she is the Hmm. ultimate influencer she is a fashion icon she is a political pot stirrer she is a teen idol Hmm. all in one her eyes were a particular shade of blue they quickly became known as alice blue Hmm. and that color alice blue sparked a massive fashion trend and next year Everyone had an Alice blue dress. It was the color.
1: Wow.
0: She had a gaggle of teenage girls following her around every time she left the house. Young
1: women used to circle Alice when she went out on the street and clap and applaud and celebrate who she was. They would literally surround
0: her on the sidewalks and just cheer three cheers for Alice Roosevelt, three cheers for (laughs) Alice Roosevelt.
1: And she just really didn't know what happened to her. But she got caught up in it because she could use it to attract and compete with her father. She could always generate more newspaper print than he could, even when he was president. And he was considered the most popular man in America. And she loved that, of course. It's a kind of revenge. Teddy
0: was also very much a fan of attention. Alice famously quipped about him that Teddy Roosevelt had to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) And she is very much cut from that same cloth. But now she gets to turn the tables. Wow. It's his presidential inauguration, but she is the one on the front page. (laughs) And it's not just fashion. It's not just what she looks like. She is... Fearlessly outspoken in private about her views on life. Everything from women's rights, she's a fierce suffragist, civil rights. She has no patience for what she sees as prudishness. Mm. She hates public speaking. She will never, ever get used to it her whole life. She will never speak in public. But she loves being the center of all eyes. That is so surprising. I, I conflate yes. those two, but guess yeah, not. Yeah, I... It's difficult to think of other people. Yeah. Maybe she's afraid she's going to misspeak or, you know, throw off her whole vibe or... And she loves living in the White House. Huh. This is the stage. This is the venue Mm. she has needed. And she gets to live with her dad. Yeah. She's officially in the family. She has to share him with five other kids and a new stepmother who really, really does not like her. Ha. And as a parent, I also can strongly identify with Edith. And boy, was she handed an unfair job with Alice Roosevelt. Mm. She has now been handed a perfect public forum for her rebellions against her parents. She <laughs> is... Flirting in public with boys. Scanty. is disobeying her parents. <gasps> she is wearing pants <gasps> no. in public. Amazing. trousers for our British listeners. Oh. <laughs> Presumably also pants, but...
1: <laughs>
0: she had the Marine Band play ragtime at a presidential ball. The first time any such modern music had ever been heard in the White House. She is chewing gum. In public. Wow. None of these things are acceptable. Great. Yeah, I, you know, she moved right in and was like, this is going to be good. Oh, she <laughs> was absolutely having the time of her life. She wow. was once in the House of Representatives in the viewers gallery and put a tack on the chair next to her, which was sat upon by what is described as an unknown but middle aged and dignified gentleman. <laughs> This wow. is in the House of Representatives. The president's daughter is leaving tax on chairs. Fabulous. She was a party animal of the first order. She is staying out all night. She's doing all of the proper social rounds, but then also hitting up the late night parties where she certainly should not be. In a little over one year, she went to 407 dinners, 350 balls. <laughs> 300 parties, 680 teas, and made 1,706 social calls. For heaven's sake. (laughs) Uh, It's exhausting even thinking about it, but that was the way the Roosevelts rolled. When somebody asked her once what it meant to be a Roosevelt, she said, something happening every second of every day. Exhausting. And then, of course, there's Emily Spinach. Love it. Her pet snake. Emily Spinach resided in Alice's purse, and she would attend every social event that Alice attended. And at some point, Alice would slip her hand into her purse, and Emily would twine her way up her arm. (laughs) Or sometimes she would just openly arrive with Emily as a bracelet or a necklace. All right. She very much enjoyed making people very uncomfortable, right? Walking in with the snake Mm -hmm. is already. But she also apparently enjoyed watching men try to avoid watching Emily Spinach.
1: When her father would have congressional garden parties at the White House, Alice would walk among them and take her snake out of her purse and wear Emily Spinach-like jewelry. And she got the greatest kick out of watching the congressman's eyes follow emily spinach as the snake explored the folds in her dress now that's definitely naughty but wouldn't you say it's fun
0: (laughs) so whether that's down her (laughs) decolletage or perhaps her skirts the snake would just wander around her person as she is exploring these society tea parties and congressional balls Alice famously carried four things in her purse at all times. A copy of the Constitution, (laughs) cigarettes, Emily Spinach, and a fertility icon. Oh, that's so interesting, because when when you were describing the snake going up her arm, I was thinking Minoan snake goddess. Yes, uh, I think she was enjoying that iconography. Wow, fascinating. What a weirdo. She drove a four-cylinder red convertible... And would go joyriding around the streets of Washington, D.C. <laughs> she went to the horse races with her friends. She made bets with bookies. Wow. She was out of control. People were absolutely scandalized. And, of course, loving every second Oh, of but it. they were loving it. Yeah. That's what the White House needs, is the scandalous daughter. <laughs> <laughs> when other politicians asked Teddy Roosevelt why he didn't rein her in... You've got to get her under control. What are you doing? He replied with one of my favorite Teddy Roosevelt quotes ever. Gentlemen, I can either run the country or I can attend to Alice, but I cannot possibly do both. (laughs) (laughs) They did try. Teddy and Edith threatened to send her to boarding school in New York after one too many scandals. Mm hmm. And she absolutely refused to leave her room. She was sobbing uncontrollably for days and days and days. They had packed her things. She was about to go. And she finally said, if you make me do this, if you make me go to boarding school, I swear I will shame you.
1: <laughs>
0: I will do something oh. so disgraceful. It will destroy oh, your fascinating. career. Ooh, what a power move. Yeah, and it worked. They relented. Wow. But it's not just hijinks. Alice Roosevelt is a woman who stands on her principles, and she is a very loud and influential woman's rights activist, suffragist. She makes her opinions very clear. There's a famous story. Her chauffeur, who was a black man, was driving her to an event, and someone felt that he had cut them off. And got out of their cars and started yelling at her driver. One of them finally yelled, What do you think you're doing, you? And used some racial epithets. Mm -hmm. These men have no idea who's in the car until Alice sticks her head out the window and shouts, He's driving me to my destination, you white SOB. (laughs) And then got out of the car and her driver had to physically restrain her From beating up these adult men, who had called her driver the N-word. Fabulous. When her father kept his campaign promise not to run for a third term and her family has to leave the White House, Alice was absolutely livid. Mm. She did not want to leave the White House and was furious that this was happening. And so when it came time for them to move, she created a voodoo doll of the new first lady, <laughs> Nellie Taft, stuck it full of pins and buried it under the front lawn. <laughs> and when it was discovered several oh. months later, she proudly admitted oh. that it had been her and responded, and I hope it worked. Wow. wow. Now, this story I adore and I found it so hilarious Incredibly defiant teenage girl. And then I did the math. Alice is 24. That's what I was just thinking. When she is doing this. (laughs) This is a 24-year-old woman making a voodoo doll Uh of her father's successor's wife. Okay. (laughs) She was officially banned from the White House. (laughs) While Taft was president. (laughs) That was the first but not the last presidential administration to ban (laughs) alice roosevelt from the white house she was also banned by woodrow wilson's administration for making what they considered to be an unseemly joke about wilson in the press as far as i know the only member of a first family to be twice banned from the white house (laughs) now to give teddy credit he did love to be the bride at every wedding (laughs) <laughs> but he had learned how to decenter himself for either others' benefit or for political benefit. For example, when you have a daughter who captures every reporter in a hundred mile radius, you could maybe use that mm. to distract from things that you wanted the press not to notice. Oh. Such as uh-huh. during the Russian Japanese War. Mm hmm. Teddy was very interested in brokering some kind of deal behind the scenes, but he knew he absolutely could not be seen to be getting involved in this war. Mm. So he sent Alice on a goodwill tour through Asia, Hawaii, the Philippines, China, Japan.
1: Mm. And so he put her on a ship in San Francisco, sent her around the world.
0: And along with her, her boyfriend, Nick Longworth... He was on the Intelligence Committee in Congress, so good reason for him to be along. They are flirting up a storm. She is doing her thing, and every eye in the world is on Alice Roosevelt and her hijinks on board this cruise ship. She was so engaging and so charming and such good headline value that nobody noticed
1: that, on the boat, also... TR had sent his Secretary of War, William Taft. So while Alice was doing all these antics, like jumping in the ship's swimming pool in all of her clothes, and the press was writing about that, William Taft slipped off and met with the diplomats from Russia and China to ask them what did they want in their treaty to end this.
0: While Alice is the decoy... Nobody noticed that this is how Taft accomplished this thing, Mm. negotiated and brokered a peace deal on board the same ship. Brilliant. Until later, someone went, wait a minute. Fascinating. You could just put her in a room and do whatever else you wanted in the corners of that room and no one would see it. (laughs) Everyone was especially paying attention to her on that trip because she and Nick Longworth announced their engagement on that trip. Well, actually, to be entirely clear, Alice Roosevelt announced their engagement and announced that he had just proposed to her. He never proposed.
1: She just announced to the press that he had proposed.
0: He had not. (laughs) I'm just going to announce that we're engaged and there's no way he can... What are you going to (laughs) do? And perhaps unsurprisingly, given that beginning, the marriage goes south rather quickly. (laughs) The general opinion is that he was constantly cheating and that she was cheating in retaliation. That is true. What really made an irreconcilable chasm in this relationship was Nick did not support her father's third political campaign. He had not run for president. But four years later, when a split in the Republican Party came up, he had run on the Bull Moose Party. Yeah. And she was supporting her father. Nick supported his old mentor, Taft. Oh, interesting. One, And she never forgave him Mm. for that. And in fact, in retaliation, she appeared on stage with his political rival during her husband's campaign (laughs) and he lost. Ooh. Wow. Brutal. He lost by about 105 votes. And Alice publicly joked to the press that she was definitely worth at least 100 votes. (laughs) So publicly boasting that she cost him Mm -hmm.
1: the election. Ooh. Nick was, uh, alcoholic, and a philanderer. He had a lot of mistresses. And when he played around on her, she played around on him. So she had a child, I can't say out of wedlock, but it was not with her husband.
0: She has a famous and fairly public long-term affair with the senator named Bill Bara from Idaho. She conceives a child by Bill Burra and even threatens to her husband to name the baby Deborah, <laughs> as in Deborah. Wow. Of Bora. Oh. Just publicly. I would jabbing never at him. dare to be married to her. Oh, terrifying! Yeah. Terrifying. She didn't do that. She named the baby Paulina, but throughout her early life, everyone called Paulina. Aurora Bora Alice. Wow. Amazing. But now as an adult and as the favorite scion of the Roosevelts, Alice becomes the central hub of Washington, D.C. After her
1: father's death, she set up a kingdom in Washington.
0: People refer to her as the other Washington monument. (laughs) And she is the gatekeeper
1: of D.C. politics. And all the politicians, when they wanted to run for office, would go to her grand house in Washington, D.C., hoping for an endorsement and praying that she would not skewer them in the newspapers. Anyone who is hoping to have any sort of
0: a political career in any serious way has to go through Alice because her jabs can be absolutely deadly to a political
1: career. I'll tell you some of the things she said about people. Because they're awful and witty at the same time. So she said about Calvin Coolidge that he looked like he'd been weaned on a pickle.
0: (laughs) Which is so mean and so true. I know instantly what she's talking about.
1: Wow! Her, Her jabs
0: are correct and so cruel. Thomas Dewey? the governor of New York and GOP presidential nominee who ran for president twice. Mm -hmm.
1: She said that he looked like the little man on the wedding (laughs) cake.
0: And it stuck. (laughs) Well, that's why he didn't win. And if you look at Thomas Nui, it's totally true. He does look like the little man on a wedding cake. And it's not really a a bad thing. That's not a horrible insult. The man on a wedding cake is nice looking and well-dressed. Yeah. But you can't take the man on a wedding cake seriously as a political figure. Nobody could ever unsee that again.
1: (laughs) And he never got over that branding. It more or less sunk his whole political career.
0: Hmm. A political columnist was claiming there was grassroots support for a very elitist presidential candidate. She publicly agreed, yes, the grassroots of 10,000 country clubs. (laughs) And that was the end of that campaign. When Lyndon Johnson had his gallbladder removed and famously lifted up his shirt to show
1: reporters the scar. And this is awful, but people loved it. Alice came back and said in the newspapers, well, thank God it wasn't his prostate. (laughs) She's...
0: Good press. You can wow. see why reporters just flock to her. She sells papes. Oh, she sells papes. She has something nasty and absolutely hilarious and almost always devastatingly perceptive to say about <laughs> everyone, and she's very willing to say it. Oh, man. I would ask her opinion on everything. Everything. Including her cousin. Franklin Roosevelt, oh. who is running for president. Wow. She was asked her opinion of what kind of man FDR was. And she responded, two-thirds mush, one-third Eleanor. Whoa. I mean, <laughs> devastating. Just, wow! Just, you're, you're devastated right now. Oh, my gosh. Amazing.
1: What a way with words. She always stayed mad at FDR because her brother, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., was supposed to be the president. And Franklin
0: had the gall to run instead. Mm. And then he married Eleanor, which is her greatest nemesis. Mm -hmm. So that was that. Yeah. Her most famous quote I had heard long before I knew who said it if you haven't got anything nice to say about anybody, come and sit next to me. <laughs> and she was. She was the center of uh-huh. snarky mm. intellectual political gossip and banter. I think I think now Fascinating. if she was here now, she would be the host of the most popular late night political talk show. Yeah. Daily show. Mm -hmm. Like, she was born to be a snarky political commentator. Yeah. Or run a podcast. Or, Uh as Shelley Fraser-Mickle points out, she would absolutely kill on Twitter. Uh She's the queen of the one-liner. And then, everything changed. When her daughter Paulina died of a drug overdose in 1957. Ooh. She left behind a very young daughter, Joanna. Whoa. And the world turned upside down for Alice. She had sort of an existential self-awareness crisis.
1: And that death of her daughter woke Alice up. Her daughter, who became at her birth the most famous baby in the world. Basically, she woke up and realized... I have not been a good mother. She smothered a child and with her exhibitionist personality, she'd never let that child develop her own personality. kept her in the public eye, but overshadowed her and smothered her. She was wounded so terribly in childhood. It was a haunted childhood. So that led to many of her mistakes. She had repeated all of
0: the same faults that she had seen her father committing, Hmm. the bride at every wedding. And Alice cannot
1: cope with it. She completely falls apart. She disappeared from herself and from society for about six months. So she woke up and she took her granddaughter moved her in with her, and raised her until the day Alice died. Her granddaughter was with her when she died. And Alice did everything for that grandchild. She becomes
0: sort of the mother to Joanna that she couldn't be to Paulina. They have a extremely close and loving relationship, and she does everything she can to kind of make up for what she saw as this massive failure in her life. That was when she finally realized, I can't just be the play-by-play commentator anymore. Mm -hmm. I have to actually engage with someone. Snark is a very strong armor. Yes. Which stops anybody from getting too
1: close. It really drew me to wanting to write this book I'm always looking for stories where people change, not just a little bit, but completely. When she raised this grandchild with all the love and unconditional love and attention she herself wanted, she really found herself. The granddaughter does not want Alice to be seen as mean or only through her antics. Because she loved her and Alice was good to her. So I wanted to honor that. And I think I have.
0: She also changes her political operations. The The vitriol is, is still there, but it is aimed at systems and things, not people. And it's fascinating to watch her maintain the brand that has made her famous while changing who she is. And it is a remarkable change. You know, that takes a huge amount of courage to do that. And to do it as a public figure is terrifying, being dissected every second. Yeah. And so it's it's really interesting to see how she makes this shift while still kind of maintaining her persona. My favorite example is when she was
1: 83 years old. At the age of 83, she stood by President Johnson as they... Unveiled a statue of her father. She refused to speak over the microphone, but she did quietly say to a journalist afterward, You have to understand, I specialize in meanness. So I have nothing to say about it. I think it's excellent.
0: Wow. It's like the best praise she can give is they have nothing to be mean about. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of that acknowledgement, this mm. curmudgeonly, well, ugh. I can't even be mean about it because it's good, Mm -hmm. but that's a way to to do both, right? And she absolutely maintained her status as a progressive pusher of policy and change and a scandalous icon. Hmm. Up until her death, she died at 96 years old. Wow. In her 90s, she attended one of the very first gay pride parades. Wow. Wow which was at that point very much a political protest, right? This is not a party parade. This is a dangerous political action. And she is publicly there on the sidelines at 93 years old, watching and cheering on this gay pride parade when this was a very, very politically unpopular position to be taking. But as always, she is as fearless about saying what she thinks and what she believes and when she is asked afterwards
1: why she was there, she always said sexual matters are private as long as you don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. <laughs> Leave people
0: alone, let them do what they want. Huh. And after this, she told a reporter she was sent a letter by a gay liberation group asking her if she would like to
1: be an honorary homosexual. <laughs> And no doubt she said yes. <laughs> wow. She continued to fight for
0: civil rights, for women's causes, and be hilariously mean about causes and structures that she found harmful or boring.
1: Hmm.
0: At the very end of her life, she said that if she had to live her life over again, she would have headed for the Oval Office herself. Oh, and I think, wow, I think that was really Hmm. the tragedy of her life is that she was living in a time when all the things that would have been celebrated in a boy were squelched and Mm. horrifying in a girl, right? I mean, smoking in your parents' house, boys aren't supposed to do that either, but it absolutely would not have been a scandal. And all of the things that she loved and wanted would be an asset to a boy Wanting a political career, and so it, it's a it's a really fascinating legacy she has. Kind of a, a, a cautionary tale of the generational damage that can pass down by parents who, even when they're doing their best, mm-hmm. are not not equipped no. to do what is needed. No, you only ever find out way too late. Yeah, what you should. You, you done. all, everyone ruins nah. their children. Yeah, we just usually ruin them in a different way. We swing the pendulum the other way. our parents did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In a new creative way. Yeah. She told a reporter, Bami could have been president. I think Bami would have been a great president. Alice absolutely could have been president if she had lived in a different time or had been a man. I am not sure how good of a president Alice would have been.
1: Hmm. In my opinion, after my research, Alice didn't have vision. She was more or less a pot stirrer. And today, she would fit into our politics perfectly. She would skewer everyone. Do
0: you know what's so interesting? Now that you mention that, it occurs to me that, like, Teddy Roosevelt's most famous quote today is about how the credit goes to the man who's actually in the arena. You know, it's not the critic who counts, who stands on the sidelines and just... Shouts and criticizes. Yeah. <laughs> seems like that's what yeah, I is and, doing. And even his speak softly and carry a big stick. Mm-hmm. He did not speak softly. He he loved to talk and yell and make a spectacle of himself. But he was aware that that wasn't helping him and and figured out a way to rein that in. Right. Because he was allowed the access to the halls of power, right? If you can be Hmm. the man in the arena with the big stick, you don't have to yell as much. But if you are not permitted in the arena, Hmm. all you can do is yell. I don't know. It's one of those where she would have made a great politician. She'd make a great 21st century American politician, right? All it is is witty banter Hmm. and skewering and not a very good leader in my opinion, but a great politician. Yeah, yeah, those are two very different things. (laughs) I think Alice Roosevelt is above all a fascinating, complicated woman who defies everything that we have been taught to think about this era, about this era of womanhood, of politics, of behavior. She doesn't conform to any sort of a standard. When she was 95 years old, a reporter asked Alice if she thought she would feature in history. And she thought for a few minutes and said, maybe I'll be a footnote. I I think she should be much more than a footnote. She is fascinating and hilarious and just Emily Spinach alone (laughs) is enough to cement her place. Mm. So I am thrilled that this book can hopefully be the sort of first launchpad toward getting her
1: back into the story. I can invite every reader to just immerse themselves in this book and have fun seeing how much of it relates to today and enjoy Alice for being Alice.
0: Enormous thanks to Shelley Frazier-Mickle. On our website at whatshernamepodcast.com, you can find photos, links, resources, and more, including some incredible photos of Alice Roosevelt and her amazing outfits. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference in helping people find us. Music featured in this episode was provided by Amanda Setlick-Wilson, the New Hot Five, Jeff Kuno, Esther Abrami, the Victor Dance Orchestra, the Melody Weavers, and Peak Duo, and the U.S. Marine Corps Band. Our interns are Kennedy Just and Katie Boucher. You can also follow us on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of great content every week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by